0: The Creative Trust podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we create and record this podcast as the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation.
1: We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. So I came up with Sands Beast pretty much like two weeks after I left Mimco. I didn't. I just did a PowerPoint presentation for myself and then popped it away in the files because I thought
0: you Were need you to on relax. Holiday when you made it? Yes, I was in ah. Bali.
1: Yeah.
2: The Creative Trust Podcast is an exploration into the minds of some of the world's best creatives. We are endlessly fascinated with the ephemeral and the intangible. We make sense of it through our creative process. Over the last two decades, we have created countless installations, each one put up pulled down each one leaving an enduring mark on its audience gloss creative and our Stella alumni share everything with you how people become creative and what we know to be true about the creative process amanda henderson founded gloss creative as her way of navigating creatively through life learning early on that she could make audiences fall in love with environments simply by making them feel and experience something Memories that last long after the physical immersion have gone. It crystallised her long-held belief that your business plan is to harness your unbridled creative force and creative renewal is your most important weapon over time. Welcome to The Creative Trust.
0: What a great day this is on The Creative Trust podcast. I'm with Catherine Wills, who is the founder, creative director of Sans Based. I'm very excited to have you here today. There is a long connection, so welcome. Thanks, Amanda.
1: Thanks for So coming. nice to be here. I'm
0: pretty, we're very excited. Mm. Um, as you know, I like to tell everyone about how we met and what our connection is. And firstly, it was a very long time ago at Country Road. It was I indeed. I was in VM and you were at that time in the knitwear area. Mm-hmm making, developing, all of that. So we met at Country Road. And then again, when I did a contract with Amanda Briskin at MIMCO, walk in there, and there's <laughs> Catherine again, which was great. And obviously you went on to do some amazing things at MIMCO, which we will talk about. And then afterwards, you know, we went both went on our merry ways until about two years ago on Instagram mm. I was in at a mechanics um, in Brunswick, um, shout out to Ralph Gustella Motors, and um, through a family connection and I went into their tea room and it was a very cute dark veneer panelled room with a somewhat of a dark laminate table and these amazing mustard like upholstered chairs and I said to Matt where did these chairs come from and he said oh there's a girl down the road um, you know and they live between the workshop and she had them out and she was getting rid of them so we took them and (laughs) put them in the lunchroom and I'm like great (laughs) anyway so I took that photo and put it up online and all of a sudden you pop up I think they're my chairs where are they (laughs) from and sure enough they were from you and you live in between the two workshops. So it's a really nice little connection to you have also with Zara. Definitely. Our
1: creative producer as well. And I know that John makes
0: bread all the time. Yes.
1: Well, um, Ralph Costello Motors also, I guess they've just been good neighbours over the years and they've taken deliveries for us when we haven't been home. And John repays that favour with fresh bread on a regular basis. Oh, I love it. So Too It's nice. Good. It's Yay. nice to have a neighbourhood vibe. Totally. Mm.
0: Today, as you know, I'm really interested about the parts of you that I don't know about, I guess, and in particular your childhood, because I have a fascination with how your early childhood, I guess, informs informs you, Mm. informs, Mm. inspires via osmosis creativity. So, how did you get
1: creative? Well, I had—I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and I've obviously listened to a lot of people tell their story about their sort of early years. And I guess I have a little bit of kind jealousy about when I hear about idyllic childhoods, because I wouldn't call mine an idyllic childhood. It was, you know, there was definitely good times there, but quite hectic, like moving around a lot. Dad was in the Air Force, many schools being the new kid on a regular basis, three sisters. So I guess as far as creativity goes, there was a lot of looking to the older sisters, dressing up in their clothes, myself and my younger sister paper dolls you know mm. all the normal sort of creative scenarios not a lot of money so it wasn't you know a house decked out with big televisions or you know we all had to play outside there was a lot of outdoor activity going on um, and then when I was about oh, probably nine and a half, Dad got a posting to the States and we moved to upstate New York. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I did – I finished primary school in upstate New York and then did um, a year of junior high and that was a really formative time for me. Like I was very shy before we went to the States and then you just don't survive as a shy kid kid in American schools. So I started drawing on weekends. Dad was really interested in drawing so I would would just – Hang out with dad on Sundays and just draw cartoon characters and I guess practice that skill from 10 onwards. And then I remember the moment when I just started getting interested in how I was presenting myself. I guess becoming interested in fashion. And we were coming back to Australia. And I just wasn't, I don't know, I just didn't want to feel under underdressed, I suppose. Like I I remember going out and wanting to buy a matching white polka dot skirt and top wow. and it was 1995 and i had to sort of you know gather right. the money to Make be able to happen. do that exactly yeah. um and i loved that outfit and from then so we got back from the states when i was 12 and i guess just from then i i was into art i was into making things yeah it was it was just a just the thing that I needed to do like whether it was drawing or whether it was putting things together from a, an outfitting point of view or whether it was dressing up our dog captain Dude. you know there was lots of you find a way an, don't in, you? in an inner world I suppose was going on it wasn't like it was a super creative household dad was quite creative in his own way and my sisters all were as well but it was more about I guess my inner world and I read a lot as well which I think also informed a bit of an escapist um, mm-hmm. mindset like, you know, Enid Blyton, The Magic Faraway Tree, all those sort of very aspects to my upbringing.
0: Isn't it interesting that the inner world today is the thing that drives creativity, mm. imagination and success mm. of a lot of people that I know? Um, you know, what a gift to have had. I mean, parts of your childhood obviously weren't idyllic, but there's, or, you know, amazing, obviously, as you said, parts in there and this inner world that you are able to create, mm. you
1: know. Oh, definitely. Fantastic. And I don't, I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a tortured childhood. It was more, I guess there was instability there, you know, moving around being yes. a new kid in school. Yeah. In hindsight, that gave me huge resilience. Yes. You know, you have to learn to be independent. You have to learn to um, speak up for yourself, even if you're terrified. Yeah. Also living in the States, you know, I discovered nature. I would sit outside and do my homework amongst the autumn leaves. Beautiful. Like I, that has been something that stayed with me, you know, to now. Mm. Like needing to get that connection to nature as nature. well, which I think also informs creativity. I mean, I don't know about you, but oh, if totally. I'm feeling a bit stunted, like I just mm. go for a big walk and suddenly things start flowing again. It is. And it's that moment where you're just in nature uh,
0: not thinking about too much. Yeah. I think that's not trying to solve the problem. Yeah. And that naturally just starts to Mm, come. That's right. Close, which is pretty exciting. Mm. So, when you came back to Australia, what happened then creatively? Like, you know, when you let towards the end of school, where were you with everything then Mm. about career choices? How did that all flow?
1: Well, I. I finished high school, like I did my HSC, and up until probably year eleven or so, I was very much focused on art and drama, and that was a creative outlet for me. But I guess going back to Dad being in the air force and the upbringing that it was, it was quite a um, you no. Know, it wasn't. It wasn't um, a, a house of flattery, I suppose. We're all <laughs> we're all told to get over ourselves and not be vain and not, yeah, you know, no, not yeah. sort of. Um, um, have tickets on ourselves. That yeah. so was very don't much. Don't get too ahead of yourself. Don't yeah. Definitely don't get too big for your boots. <laughs> um, it was definitely <laughs> about being realistic about things. So when I finished HSC, sorry, when I went to go into Year Twelve, I did a bit of a pivot and made sure I had a broad cross section of subjects. So I gave up drama, I kept art, but I made sure that I was focused on maths and English, obviously, and biology. So I had a very broad cross section. When I finished high school, it sounds odd to say now, but I didn't actually have the confidence to go to, straight to uni. You know, I went to Winterna High. It wasn't like it was a super creative school. I had no idea how you built a folio. Like all of that was very foreign to me. I think I was quite sheltered in no some knew ways. No one didn't know what a folio was, really. No, probably. I mean, we're yeah. talking Long we're talking 1987 yeah. when yeah. I finished HSC. So I got a job in an office. Um, and I lasted there for maybe a year and then I went into retail, um, and that was when Benetton chapter, Mm. um, and then I got a job. It wasn't that ahead of its time? It was. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah, the Benetton in Australia probably wasn't as amazing as as it was in Italy. Um, It wasn't. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I learned to fold sweaters really well and I learned to, you know, run a, a little store and that was also, you know fun for me from a creative point of view and then I got the role um, a junior role at JAG and that was when I realized if I'm going to pursue the career that I want to pursue which was in fashion and creativity I needed to get which is an interesting um, segue (laughs) I wanted to go and get go to school and and learn and learn yeah and I guess just to have that um, that freedom of the things that I probably wasn't that I didn't get in high school you know, I wanted to learn about color and proportion and textiles and all the rest of it. So, mm. I would go home every night from my job at JAG, which is where I was working in the fabric department as a junior, as a sample fabric trafficker was my title. I love that. I know it sounds quite sexy, doesn't it? A trafficker. Trafficker. I know. <laughs> and Paul, I'm thinking I would all go. Those words. <laughs> I would go home and just draw to build a folio to present to RMIT. I don't think it was an amazing folio, but they must have seen something in there. I don't think
0: anyone's folio is at that point.
1: But you know what, Amanda? I got into RMIT first year. I started talking to all these, um, becoming friends with the people that had come straight Mm. from high school in there. And they'd gone to Wesley and other schools that had amazing art departments. And they did know what a folio was. Mm. Whereas Mm. I was this chick from Wonturner. And you felt you didn't know? Yeah you know it took it took a while to realize that i guess creativity is a bit of a leveler like we all bring a different aspect to creativity irrespective of whether you've come from affluence or or not yeah, i think
0: it absolutely is is and there's different skill levels and people come at it from different design genres yeah you know it's really that's what i actually really love about creativity you know it might be a VMer or a you know textile designer yeah. or a graphic designer or an interior designer can all do the same job. Yeah. Or have come from those different backgrounds but do the same job. Yeah. And that's I find very interesting. And yeah. that's how people bring bring it Yeah. what they are to the game. It's nice seeing that.
1: Well I also think it it's it would be a boring life if we stayed in one particular Whatever modality or area, mm, mm, mm. and always felt that's where we had to stay. Mm, mm. I mean, I remember being in knitwear um, mm. and really wanting to have a bigger role at that particular time, mm. and certainly being given the feedback oh, but aren't you knitwear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, that's like, I'm a creative. I can sketch, I can do the technical aspects, I can cost it, I can do lots of things, but there's, it, it could be in any area, really. Mm-hmm. So how did you make that leap?
0: Because that is a question we often Mm. get from people. I'm in this area. Everyone sees me in this lane. Yeah. How do I get people to see me differently? That's often a question we get. So how did you make that leap? You know, one minute, you know, you're doing the knitwear, Mm. unpacking the knitwear. I can see you at that desk. (laughs) Measuring
1: the knitwear. Yeah,
0: measuring it up next to the drawing. Yep. And then... All of us, not all of a sudden, because no. it's a slow progression. Mm. But the next thing people see, creative director. Mm. How did you make that leap? Was there someone there that saw that, you know, potential
1: in you, or just saw the way you worked, you know? Or um, how did
0: how did that come about? Yeah,
1: well, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't a, an overnight leap, that's for sure. I mean, I was doing knitwear at Country Road. I was an assistant, and then I, I left there and I went to London to live for a year because personal circumstances Uh and I came back to Country Road really evolved in the knitwear space to design manager there eventually left because I wasn't happy for a variety of reasons but pigeonholing was one of them yeah and I think I'm responsible for that as well like I pigeonholed myself as well and I recognized that I needed to grow the wings and escape Mm -hmm. um, in order to see the world differently and have the world see me differently Mm -hmm. I suppose and I do think there is that
0: thing if you aren't getting anywhere where you need to get in a
1: company. You've got to get you know, out of there. You've got to go out yeah. and
0: come back on the top. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And there's
1: there's also, I definitely, even though I wasn't un, I wasn't happy at that stage, I also recognised that me being unhappy was bad for the business as an as an entity. There's nothing worse than someone that stays in a job complaining every day. But doesn't do anything about it. And doesn't do anything it. about yeah, it. Yeah. Like, yep. get out. Yep. So I freelanced for a while and in that freelancing process, Amanda – came across my name because she wanted to build a knitwear collection. So I actually entered MIMCO as a freelance knitwear designer. Amazing. Um, And I did that for a couple of years and then I thought it's time to stop freelancing, it's time to get back into actually having some security in my life. Mm. And I thought that I would get back into apparel. I really didn't think I'd move into accessories and just Mm -hmm. by sort of chance of fate Amanda was looking for someone to support on the accessory side so I did that for a few months and I just thought wow this is this is where I want to be mm-hmm. because even though handbags and sweaters seem like very different things when you're working with yarn and you're building the fabric as you're building the, the garment it, it's it, there's a technical aspect that goes with the creative process mm-hmm. and it's the same with Handbags, jewellery, shoes. Development. It's development, mm, and you need to understand exactly. Yeah, you yeah. need to understand the materials, how they're going to function when you start working with them, and then obviously you need to understand trend and shape and proportion and construction and all the rest of it. Mm. So I ended up signing on as a permanent person with Memco as a as design manager, and then Dave and Amanda started making moves to sell the business mm-hmm. to Witchery. Yep, and long story short couple of argy-bargy moments but you know became creative director in 2008 I think it was and then two years later took on the commercial side of things as well. Amazing. Which um with you know with support there but definitely that was its own you know um sort of journey Mm -hmm. and challenge in itself. Mimco was
0: so different to any other business obviously early influence of Amanda Briskin.
1: Pretty incredible. Absolutely. So incredible. Yeah. I'm so grateful for that chapter with Amanda. She's
0: just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, everything about those bags was squishy Mm. and super useful. What what, what, what magic from Mimco have you sort of become infused with that you still carry with you? Oh, so much. What was
1: it about it? So much. I mean, Amanda in herself, is and was at the time, you know, an incredible individual to work with. Mm. But there were other amazing individuals there as mm. well. Catherine Bolsch, Rochelle Dendle. like there was just a bunch of creative souls there. Jess Stimson, like just... Oh, I love Jess. Yeah. yeah. Vicky Ellenport, like there was there was just some amazing people there that energy was high and sometimes, you know, that became fraught, bloody hot. <laughs> um, I, I remember, you know, you coming in to do some work at one stage and you put a handwritten sign up on the wall that said slow is the new fast and I thought oh my gosh good luck with that one (laughs) yeah I thought the burnt out of there
0: (laughs) yeah pretty it was a it was all I could do really because it was so fast I'm like man too fast you don't actually need to work that
1: no fast you need to work better
0: Yep, for sure and I've um
1: (laughs) So, in answer to your question, what sort of magic, I'm so grateful for that chapter too. particularly after coming out of Country Road, big business, successful business, learned a lot about raw materials. I'm so grateful for that, particularly, you know, the yarn learning and going to Piti and all the mentorship Amazing. that I had in that chapter. But to come into MIMCO and have this vibe of, you know, no one needs what we do. We have to create for desire and to to truly feel like that, like spoke to me and to, to learn or to recognize that that's I was home, like that was the sort of creative environment that I wanted to, wanted to be in, particularly because i'd been nurturing my creativity but also my commercial acumen as well and Brilliant. I guess i I, I, be, I really do believe, but i've had to gain confidence in this over the years that the two are just not mutually exclusive, like I really do think that one doesn't get watered down by having strength in the other one you and, know and Isn't that a hard lesson to work out? Well, and it's also other people (laughs) reinforce it. Exactly. You know, when MIMCO was, um, when I did take on the commercial side of things and I had, you know, the support of Ian Nan, who was CEO of the group. I had lots of, you know, there were people there to to Mm. tap and to talk to, but I don't underestimate the effort that I put in to learn about leasing and profit and loss statements and wages and everything that had to go into that. But what ends up happening is people need to identify you in a particular area. And they love to give you a label. They love to give you a label. Mm-hmm. And because I'm particular at that time, you know, quite a high energy, I present like a creative person. So sometimes people's brains couldn't understand that I could also add things up yes. and, you know, <laughs> make sure that we made money as yeah. a business and pull the yeah. appropriate levers to ensure that we were profitable.
0: Yeah, I think that's a story for a lot of people. So, absolutely. I do find it's that thing, once you work out that being business-like, as you said, it's not mutually exclusive. No, In fact, one starts to inform the other. Yeah. You know, once you get a sense of, you know, how successful financially it could be, you know, or how big this bag or the need for this bag Mm -hmm. in the market is – then you've got the acumen to make that a bestseller or yeah. whatever. I mean that that can't be underestimated. If you know, you know, if you've got both parts of the brain working, yeah, I, think I think that so is too. definitely you get you still are creative. You don't stop being creative. Yeah, I thought that if I managed Sports school Bourke Street, I my creativity would suffer. Not
1: the case. No, I learnt more. I think unfortunately the press, the world, society often says oh creatives you know us creatives don't know how to add up oh us creatives need the help of those money people to tell us the way and I always think it's often women that say that as well and I always think why would you underestimate yourself you know creativity and and having a pulse linked into what the market actually wants and to sense what the zeitgeist is going to be or to know you know that whole vibe to know how to emotionally connect with people That is not an easy thing to learn. Like that has to come from gut feeling and just living life, I think. The mathematical side of things, it's a skill. You just got to learn it, Mm. you know, and I think Mm. that's the easiest stuff to learn, really. Because there's places to go and
0: learn 101. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think that underestimation of women being Being business-like is crazy is weird. Yeah. It is It is very difficult. And I think that is, that's where you, one of the great questions we had during the week, we put some questions out to what would you like to hear? Mm. And one of the best questions was like, how do you deal with mansplaining? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, mm, and I was trying to think of a, you know, time that, that had happened to me. And I couldn't think of a particular time, except that when I started my business, people were like, oh that's nice and then you know after two or three years when it was becoming a thing oh you've done really well Oh, yeah you know yeah oh, it's it's kind of like a back accomplice is what you call it totally. you know and it's like well why would you think that of me you yeah know? like I don't think about that as myself yeah. I've worked out you know how to be profitable straight away you know yeah so and all of What was great about being in retail as an environment when you start your own business, in retail, you've already worked out that there's money in, you know, how to make knitwear using budgets. So you actually have a lot of skills in those areas just to do the job, you know, 250 windows per month, you know, you do all the maths on that. Yeah. So you already have these skills but people don't know or don't see that often. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that's changed now. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I mean I Hopefully. think I think you just gotta I guess run your own race and not take on board other people's perceptions. I mean the proof so mm. you love it. My cliches are just gonna start coming out. The proof is in the <laughs> Run yeah, your yeah, own yes. race. Bring them on. Um yeah, I think like it's yeah. just self evident that if you if you're doing well in a business I don't need to prove to anyone that I'm creative as well Mm -hmm. I think it's more my how I perceive myself that has needed the most work because I've always I guess valued that I'm professional and you know a good business person and I've needed to nurture that creative side to make sure she that inner child one better term Mm. doesn't disappear on me because I think you know I had such a pre-America and even a little bit post-America, you know, shy child, loved creativity, the dancing that I got into, making costumes, the drawing, all the rest of it, I needed to make sure that that, that, that little Catherine or Cathy as, you know, yeah. I referred to before, maybe that's why I don't like being called Cathy because it reminds me of that, you know, didn't, didn't disappear. Like yeah. I think we can, those two personalities can come together.
0: Absolutely. And I feel... I mean that's the inspiration I
1: always take from
0: the Japanese culture. They're so serious but then, you know, I always give the example, you'd be on a train and there's a businessman in his suit and he's got some cartoon character flopping off the end of his Definitely, phone. yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. yeah. You know, they know there is that sense of you can like fun, youthful things but it doesn't mean you're not an adult. It yeah. doesn't mean you're a kid-old, yeah. you know, not grown up. Mm. A lot of people sometimes align joy and fun with immaturity. You. Yes. Definitely. Wrong. Yeah. That what you're talking about, the inner child to me and letting that still float around and be there mm. is, the, is the magic. That's where if you can tap back into that, that's the thing that you'll get your renewal from. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's your core you. Yeah. If you dive back into that when you don't know what the hell's going on, mm. you can make it up. Mm. And I, I love that you just said, you know, I mean, the run your own race mm. thing, you know, you've got obviously this creativity and intention. So you are just, you know, in flow and going with it. And one of the things that I remember early on in, or not so early on, you know, under your reign, there are a couple of of initiatives that you took there that I, you know, saw from a distance and went, wow, this is amazing. And the first one was a giant poster of a woman of colour in the window. I'm talking 15 years ago. Mm. Like we're only just getting there now. So I feel like your kindness or your view of the world was wider early on than a lot of people Mm. thanks amanda Uh, no and you know i'm not on our watch as
1: well Mm. you know our watch was a yeah that was a special initiative to get off the ground exactly Mm.
0: so i feel like already you know even 10 and 15 years ago you started to use your powers for good Mm. i mean you've obviously incredible things um, all your whole life but I started to see from as an outsider just walking down High Point you know Mm. or wherever that and these beautiful things with this not on our watch and what's that about and I just thought this is fantastic Mm, and I guess that leads me a bit to this is all pre-Sans Beast. Yes. Tell me about how this sort of intention Mm. And you
1: changed and how mm. we came to Sandsby? Mm. Well, the Memco chapter was long and it was intense. And I I loved a lot of it, loved most of it actually. Um, and even when Country Road bought Witchery Group and we became part of CRG. One happy family. <laughs> um, yes, you know, walked back into that building on Church Street, it was actually great for the brand, it was great for Mimco, it was great for the team, there was more support there. You know, we'd sort of run on the smell of an oily rag but it had been pretty tight and it was great to have that um, I wouldn't call it opulence but you know an HR team a stationary cupboard you know Support you people need. <laughs> doing dispatch at back of house the um, exactly so it was that was a great chapter but I I'd increasingly I guess started learning about animal products I'd, I'd watched Cowspiracy which was more environmental than it was animal welfare focused I stopped eating meat and I don't know, I was, not, I don't know, I do know, I was starting to become more aware of what I was doing for a job. I'd also felt that I had done the job so intensively that it was becoming Groundhog Day. So whether it was budgeting, whether it was, you know, writing the narrative for every collection. So I, I love writing, I love storytelling, and I would write quite a escapist sort of magical story I'm not sure how many people it landed on perfectly but you know it was something that I felt I can still recall every single collection based on the story that I wrote for each collection it wasn't just summer winter it was evolution utopia it was unpredictable revolution it was paradise battalion like there was lots of (laughs) I used to
0: read every word if that makes you feel any better I'd go up and read the decal on the window
1: I know I'd read but that is about vision Yeah, I get I don't know. I mean I it is thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that. See the Air Force father's coming out again.
0: That's having an idea. Yeah. I mean, that's that's part of the whole thing. Anyone who can generate ideas that generate a feeling or a mood or a romance and tell that story by delivering it, that's the superpower these days. Yeah. You know, and I always say if you can do that, you've got a business. You've got a career, and you'll get paid. Yes, you know? I agree. Yeah, yes. so you
1: certainly were doing that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I, but it all became Groundhog Day. I'd done it all a lot. I'd done it for many years. I'd written stories. I'd done strategies. I'd recruited people. I'd moved people on. You know, there was just so many chapters. And I felt, you know, MIMCO was turning 20 in the February of 2016. I'd would i gone vegetarian. I was on my way to going vegan. It was becoming increasingly uncomfortable for me to work with leather. But really one of the, I didn't just have a wake up, you know, I didn't wake up one day and just say, I don't want to work with leather. I quit. It was a slow progression for me. There was the ethical side of the materials, but it was also a recognition that for the brand's 20th birthday, I, I really felt that... I'd given the brand all I could give it, and it it needed and deserved a breath of fresh air, maybe some new blood to come into the business and give it a different angle. So yeah, I resigned in Feb 2016, just just prior to our big 20th birthday bash. I had quite a long notice period, obviously, because you know you can't just walk out when you're at the, that level. And then I took a holiday and travelled. It was beautiful, but I just I. Didn't really. I found it very difficult to relax. So I came up with Sands Beast pretty much like two weeks after I left Mimco. I didn't. I just did a PowerPoint presentation for myself and then popped it away in the files because I thought
0: we need you need to relax. Holiday when
1: you made it, yes, I was in <laughs> Bali. Yeah.
0: See, it, uh, holidays and travel do open your mind.
1: Definitely. But John, my partner, was like, "You need, just need to chill out." Um, <laughs> so I, I I wrote the little the the manifesto I suppose for it. And then um, we started traveling. I wrote a blog while I traveled. So I was terrified of being forgotten, to be honest. I, l- I loved the blog. Yeah,
0: God, we so were so all watching here, it. Don't it. worry,
1: we were jealous. We we're like, uh, how come she's out there having a good time? It was a lovely holiday. But I think the identity crisis that occurs when you leave a big job, you know, where you pay. Who am I? Who am I if I don't have the title, if I don't have the kudos? You realize. Afterwards, also, that when people are laughing at your jokes and agreeing with you, it's because you're the boss, not because necessarily you're that bloody funny. It's all those wake-up calls that you get. So then I consulted for a while, and then May 17, I established Sands Beast, because I just realised that I was consulting, I was I interviewed for a couple of jobs, and it was the Christmas going into between 16 and 17, I just thought, I can't go and be whatever, managing director, or creative director for another, for, as an employee, I just... It's time to, to take the leap and to put your money where your mouth is. You know, I was sort of thinking maybe I could convince a board to go vegan. We could do, a, you know,
0: yes. a vegan, uh,
1: change a leather business into vegan. And it was just like, no, nah, you're going to have to be the brave one here, Kath. So, yeah, May 17 established and then we launched in March 18. Wow. Yeah. And it's been, it's, it's I would say,
0: wildly successful no I wasn't going to say that I I mean I I, I
1: think it's been um I would say outside looking in, it's definitely been successful and I think getting through the pandemic and still being growing is and still being here and growing is a good thing no I was going to say just the amazing lessons that you learn when you when you have your own business like it's Mm. um it's such it's such a lesson in resilience training I think and there is no one necessarily to lean on to, to learn what you need to learn, I suppose. And I always thought that I was, you know, particularly in the MIMCO years, a a well-rounded leader, not perfect by any stretch, but I, I understood digital marketing. I understood the website. I understood socials. You knew what you needed to Yes. But then you, you're there in this little Two or three person operation at the beginning, and you're like, far out. All oh, right, okay, we've got to do that. Oh yeah, I've got to go pack a parcel. Oh yeah, how do we do Australia Post? How do we get dispatch happening?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: there's just so much to learn. Well,
0: it's all very hands on. It's hands on, which I actually found quite refreshing in a way. Yeah. And I guess that. One, I guess that's the relearning totally. and the reinvigorating. Mm. You know. I do think you've definitely are at the forefront of this type of accessory. As you said, you know, to move from leather to non, you know, a man-made. synthetic leather or yeah, be it cactus, yeah. A, a man-made material. Because when I grew up, I wouldn't have been dead oh. with a vinyl bag. Absolutely. You know, vinyl or plastic as we used to call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting now how you've, you've, firstly, you've managed to take a stand and you've gone, actually, there is a different bag. Mm. It still looks amazing, it feels amazing, it's fit for purpose and hello, it's cool, Yeah, not only because it looks but because of a whole variety of reasons. Mm. So for me, I think it's definitely been, it's an icon label that I think people will over time obviously use and it will grow but people will recognise what you've done Thank you. I, I think, I think you know, and I look at, you know, the people who work in our business, mm. everyone, you know, certainly anyone under 30 has three or four or five of your bags. Yay. Um, yeah, which is great. Yeah. So how do you feel like um, traditional markets and younger audiences mm. are perceiving your brand? Are you getting customers that are coming from, you know, more traditional, you know, someone like myself who was like, Give me a Gucci leather yeah. bag any day. Yeah, you know, and but now looking around and going, actually, this could be a great bag too. You yeah. Know, whereas I see the younger people as like, I'm not having leather.
1: You yeah. Know, this is for me. Yeah. How is
0: that perceived? And who are your customers? I guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's it's quite diverse. I mean, yes, we have a, a strong contingent of you know what you'd call young customers. Yeah. Sort of the 18 to 24. I guess very influenced by social media launching with the straps the very bold branded straps was a you know fortunate move and that that I I think gives them a sense of I'm part of something I'm part of something that cares that is cruelty free that is doing far less damage to the environment than cow leather you know there's a lot of it's a lot of romantic marketing out there about animal products Mm -hmm. and I've been a part of that working in knitwear and then working in leather you know, noble fibers, for example. Yes. You know, when it comes to cashmere and sheep and all the rest of it, and the same with leather. And I think that there is a lot more education out there. And as we know, with social media being what it is, um, the, the younger generation are very connected to reading articles and learning about these things. Having said that, there's no denying that we have a, an older customer as well; those that maybe have gone vegan later in life. But there's, there's a bunch of people that are definitely not plant-based in their diet that are shopping with us. I mean, the whole point of starting the, ra- starting the brand was not just to market to those that are already living, you know, in a vegan space. I felt that what was missing on, in the marketplace, there was obviously great luxury, stellar handbags, definitely, stellar shoes. But there was very cheap and cheerful non-leather, PVC, which we don't use. We use a polyurethane-coated fabric we use cactus material. I'm using other things as well as time goes on. I felt that there was something missing in that middle space. Accessibly priced, well-designed, design-led, not just copying. All yes, the b- absolutely. Which is what was happening I mean, in the PVC space. Absolutely, Because they yeah. didn't start those businesses to be ethical. They started them the to be a cheaper version of the leather. Yeah, price, Entry and point. It, exactly. Sort of like yeah. $50 handbag sort of thing. So I think there's, I, it's broad, the customer base. I think also
0: just it's almost or as well it's not just what they're made of is the aesthetic it's yeah very, definitely yeah I'd call it utilitarian luxe in a way how do you describe the vibe of your brand the actual look of the bags mm. and the bags themselves like how do you see that
1: utilitarian is a word that I use quite a lot mm. I like the first series that we did was called The Night Army of Madame Flamingo, um, <laughs> which, that. well, what is hilarious is I've, I'm sure that Mimco was still running through my veins when I launched <laughs> this because I was still, you know, it's such a long name. Like people can't it's just roll it the- <laughs> It's good. Now we're very short and sharp with our series names. But the whole inspiration was the revolution, uh, Second World War, like the women of the, um, the revolutionary people. Beautiful. Revolutionary. Yeah, that's it. Revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Some great photos that we pulled of, you know, army sort of gear to inspire some of the bags. So it's got quite a, a functional, you know, it's quite linear, I guess, in the aesthetic. It's not, it's not fussy at all. And I'd obviously had a very long chapter of fussiness, fussiness <laughs> which worked for me for a long time, but this was more about streamlined. I wanted it to be androgynous. Um, I wanted men and women to wear it. Now, naturally, we have far more women than men buying from us at the moment but that is slowly changing I think as people become more confident with just because you say it's not a women's bag or a men's bag it's just a bag that I like yes Yes. so I think it's utilitarian I would also say it's inspired sort of by the intersection of men's wear and women's wear like there's a tailored aspect to it as well Mm. you know sometimes we're asked you do soft slouchy bags and of course you hear that and you think oh maybe there's an opportunity but I just that is just not the vibe of the brand at this stage. It's not mm-hmm. going to be um, a super collapsible sort of silhouette. has more structure for you. Yeah, there's more structure there. I mean, that's not to say that we won't expand ah. as time goes on, but it's always got to have that, yeah, utilitarian vibe, for want of a better word.
0: I'm really interested to hear from you what constitutes a good working bag. Like, What do you think a customer needs from a bag? Mm. what are the things you know when i look at your bags they're very detailed they are yeah there's always that little pocket or that beautiful lining or the zips i mean looks great and is good hand feel that sort of thing yeah what do you think is it that makes a good handbag
1: well i think the the natu- the the functionality um the utility that people expect from a handbag is that they can fit their things into it mm. I mean, obviously the whole trend towards micro handbags is bizarre to me. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a bit disappointing that we're sort of going into that space where it really doesn't do anything. You can barely, you know, put a lipstick into it. So I find our customers definitely want utility in their bags. Having said that, we're not Katmandu, we're not beat it up, chuck it around. It's not going to look great if you do that to it. So pockets, I, I can't bear a bag like that you can't get into, even if it's a small bag, you need to be able to open it up enough to see what's Seen inside. See what's inside. Yeah, and so otherwise when, it just
0: goes into the abyss.
1: Well, there's that, but also you know a stingy zip opening, for example, that you open it, and you can't actually get in there. Like imagine if it's on your shoulder and you're trying to get in there, it's annoying, it's very very annoying. So I think yeah, utility function, comfort on the shoulder as well, or comfort in the hand is important. I think so too. Mm. And I know uh, one of our
0: team adore I'll call it a bum bag, but it has a handle and just a seat smuggler. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So just the fact the way that opens out and lifts the yeah, lid. It's and very you can easy to get see into that bag. Everything mm. it's you know, and then you can still carry it with the bag. And yeah. I agree. I've I purchased a really beautiful, very small bag that I'd watched on Netta Porter you know, joyously coming down in price till I finally got it one summer, yep. you know, and I got it and I got it and opened the box and was so excited and I put my phone in it and my phone stuck out the top.
1: I'm like, that is one thing. oh my God, yeah. I
0: actually can't even use this bag. Yeah. I can't even actually fit my lip gloss. Yeah. I could maybe put one credit card mm. and I was like, that's actually a deal breaker. If yeah. I can't put my phone, a lipstick, and a pair of glasses, it's actually a deal breaker, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, while the small bags look good now, I've definitely –
1: I think yeah. you can go small, but it's yeah, – I mean, yeah. I'm carrying a small bag today, but I can yeah. still put my small oh, wallet yeah, in it, my exactly. phone, and I, you know, my glasses. Everything's getting
0: minier and minier. Yeah, it's which pretty, it's to pretty me funny just funny, talks it?
1: to social media and just the – the, the look of it versus the function yeah. of it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's another really important thing. Part of sustainability for fashion is timelessness. Yeah. And I do feel like whether the bag was from 2016 or now, there's this – it it it's not time-stamped. Oh, is, definitely. It, definitely. Which I think is obviously an important thing. Yes, it is. is it's about sustainability. Yep, it is, know?
1: definitely. I don't think anyone – that look, even when you think about colour, there's always temptations to do colours that are of the moment, but ultimately we want people to love the bag in years to come. Absolutely. I mean, there's not that many designers that can do colour and it can be eternal. Dries Van Noten is probably one of the only ones that I would say, you know, you can look back on things from twenty years ago and irrespective as to whether the colour is trending or not, you Still. love
0: that piece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The designer for me that's like that is Jesus Del Pozo.
1: Mm. He always has always had a
0: slight acid mid tone bright to everything he does. Yep. He's always mixed like the acid yellow with the pale pink. Yeah, I love that. And that colour combination for me. Yeah. It comes sort of comes and goes in fashion, but he sort of uses it all the time. Yeah. And it's something that I feel every time, you know, I even look at some of his dresses from five years ago and go, I'd wear that. Now. Still relevant. Still relevant. Still, it has this freshness or this interest or this lightness about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you, you just go, that's timeless.
1: I'm not going to pronounce her name properly, but Consuelo Castig- Castiglioni, I think, of, of
0: Yeah. Oh, hello.
1: Before, um, I don't, Yeah. When she sort of walked away from that years ago.
0: I mean, Navy is never gonna go out of Absolutely. fashion. Absolutely.
1: But then putting a pop of yellow in there or a really fiery red in there, that that label has always been eternal as well. But Dries is the one that's in my heart forever. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's the uh, best.
0: <laughs> I'd love to know about your creative process. Tell me everything, how you start. How you move through to production and costing.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone would like to hear how the bag happens. Yep. Uh, well, our, our collection is not large. So it's very different to how I've worked when I've worked in businesses where, you know, there's a lot of SKUs that you have to create. It, yes. There's an option plan. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's a simplified version of any other design business. Pretty much starts with materials and a colour palette, which is, you know, lots of little swatches. We don't tend to, not don't tend to, I don't want the collection to ever be about throwing out the old and bringing in the new. Like there's always a good 60% to 65% of the collection that is flowing and repeating. We might do some new colours. We might put it into a new textured material. Then it's about starting to sketch. And for Sans Beast, that has been You know, there's been different people in the team that have supported me on that. We're fortunate now. We have a design manager in the business, um, someone that I've worked with for many years at MIMCO. Beautiful. She's an amazing sketcher. She's an amazing technician. She knows construction inside out. So V and I will work together on what we need in the collection. And it's not just, this is trending. It's more about, we've had a lot of feedback on this one. I think we need a portrait version of this landscape tote. I think we need another hip bag in this that does this sort of end use or does this look. She'll, she'll sketch. And then it's about doing all the technical packs, which are all the measurements, the construction notes, etc. cetera, um, ordering the sampling material. It might be, if it's a new piece of hardware that we're putting into the collection, that's got to be sketched as well and then it up into a 3D version of that. Okay. So we can get a... So do they use like Rhino or are
0: there packages We don't use Rhino, but
1: the factory do. Um, that do the hardware have got either Rhino or a version thereof. So isn't that interesting? Everything we make,
0: whether it's an installation stand or mm-hmm. anything, ends up through Rhino. Right. And yet you're making a bag. Yeah. Isn't that really... Well, it's a 3D sort of package, thing. you know, interesting.
1: So we'll do the sort of the... Uh, when I say we, the business, will do a sketch. I mean, I can sketch and I can have a view as to what I think we need in the range. And certainly at the beginning I was sketching, but it is such a pleasure to have Valeria in the business because yeah, I mean, my sketches are fine, but they're not not her level at all. And even before, V have worked with a freelancer, Simone, for a couple of years. She's also brilliant at handbags. Mm. So, yeah, it's about getting the technical drawings happening, getting the hardware happening, and then it all comes together in a prototype. Mm. I've worked with this particular factory for sixteen years, so I know Tony and his brothers very well, so we can communicate in a um short in a bit of a shorthand yeah. yeah um we're on WeChat every day with them, and obviously email as well. It's mm. definitely better. You can achieve more when you can go to China four times a year and of sit course. in the factory and work mm. with them and you know, have the bag sitting between you. So obviously COVID has changed that. Definitely. How, how have you sort of navigated that? Look, I mean, I would not go back to, well, I wouldn't want to relive 2020, let's just say that. Mm. Um, having mm. said that, I think some good things came out of it Of course. for me from an evolution point of view. Yeah. It's just, it is just WeChat and phone mm. calls and email. Mm. Um, and I would absolutely say it's as a result of having such a long-term um, business relationship exactly. with them. Exactly. Yes. Um they've gone through hard times as well, you know, they've had Yes. Absolutely. They've gone through the America China scenario where mm-hmm. you know tariffs were being put on things so some of their American customers cancelled orders. Mm. And then with Covid happening as mm. you would know even in Australia like ev- everywhere people Every, cancelled no on factories.
0: No one's just been
1: sailing through. No. Yeah. And yeah. You know, we didn't cancel anything with Tony. We, you know, it Amazing. was a very difficult year for us. Mm. We had wholesale accounts cancel their stock. Mm. We were left with a lot more than what we had planned for. Mm. But I think relationships in manufacturing. Everything. Everything. Mm. And, and fabric suppliers, like mm. everything that goes into making something. Mm. And from my point of view, that's, I feel so fortunate to have had those JAG early years in my career. Because that's when manufacturing was happening in Australia. All, this, all um, in my role as sample trafficker, mm. all the fabric came into <laughs> when you the hauling. head office. <laughs> you know, the patterns would be made there, the first protos would be made there. It, it really gave an appreciation for the um, the process, the process. Mm. You know, I think I've always really tried to instill in younger designers coming through that ordering samples or working on product is not just about emailing them; it's about understanding what raw material you're trying to. Source, mm. you know this whole thing of can we just ask China to find that? It's like, mm. well, china's a vast space of 1.3 billion people. Let's give them a few Let's more. Let's give clothes. them a few more clues <laughs> rather than giving them a picture of a button that you'd like to find. Yes. So yeah, relationships yes. and understanding and respecting the work that goes into making things, uh, I think has has underpinned us um, surviving and thriving. Mm. Definitely. And I, I,
0: you know, if you find a maker who can deliver your help you alongside you deliver your dream, mm. that is gold. Yeah, I always say those people are the gold because without them, you don't have a business. And you I know? think
1: more people need to understand that. I think I've seen people treat factories badly, and obviously seen you know it it done very well also. And I do tend to work better with designers and production people that respect factories Mm. because uh, they're not this far off, you know, mechanised unit that you can speak to like they're robots. Mm. These are, they're, they're an extension of our team. Yeah.
0: And isn't that great? You know, you're describing to me the people you've worked with over years and now that you, you know, you've assembled a new team. There is that beautiful shorthand mm. that you do get as you work with people that, you know, sometimes you just understand and it is a time efficient in a way that everyone knows what's going on. Everyone has the same goals, yeah. you know, and you, the pleasure is working on the project yeah. and what exciting things you can do no one has to catch up yep. you already are at the same pace so that's when you can really try the new stuff or spring from there or what about this because everyone's already on the bus if you know oh, what I mean and it, team it's culture very is, efficient, efficient team culture
1: is everything my mm. sister also works with me and she's been there from oh, the that's beginning nice yeah i mean it's had its it's had its moments but you know as all sisters do have their moments but i love that she's there you know mm. and she's she's she has a diverse role and works on you know various aspects of the business but again we have a shorthand as i do with valeria so mm. yeah i think being able to particularly being a small team i know that you mm. said in another one of your podcasts you know, the team can often, people think the business is bigger because you've done big, big things yes. and I think uh, it's the same with us. People think the business, when I'm interviewing, which I'm doing at the moment, uh, people think that the team is a lot bigger. Where's the company boardroom and bar? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, like, it's not here. But you can, if, you, if you know what you're doing, you can put mm. polished product to market, you can have polished social media, great storytelling on a website. It's about having professionals in the team, mm. really. I love it. Tell me about being
0: online. Mm-hmm. Is there, like, a you know, out of 100%, how important is online your online business? Or are your distribution networks through retail locations sort of
1: more favorable to you? What oh, do no. you online? Yeah, online, yeah. definitely. Right. Um, and it's not so much, I mean, yes, it is primarily online at the moment because we physically don't have spaces other than our Brunswick mm. studio mm-hmm. head office. We will do spaces. Yeah. I there's was enough gonna, money in a, the bank. That's another question. <laughs> Definitely. When's the store coming? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's has got to work out the finances on that one. No, it's, it's more about whether it's online or whether it's bricks. When we do have bricks, it's, it's about the direct to consumer um, aspect that will always see us. Um, that will always underpin any level of profitability growth. Wholesale is about awareness, whereas direct-to-consumer is the thing that like We're going to have to drive harder. And we yeah. have driven harder for, well, really actually since from COVID. From the beginning? No, no, from the beginning for sure. But then we did start to expand into wholesale. Um, mm. And then COVID happened and we, you know, it was a bit difficult and got mm. a little bit burnt, which is completely fair enough. Wholesalers mm. have to look after their business as well. But it was a it was an informed, a strategic shift that I had to make, which was if this hangs around for a while, I'm not going to rely, I'm not going to allow the business to rely on wholesale as a growth engine. Mm. We need to make sure that we've got our website functioning as well as possible, that our socials are great, that we have a head office that people can come to and buy and that we build our database and get people liaising with us. Mm. Um, Having said that, I love that we're in David Jones. That's, that is a brilliant um, physical presence that we have and we have a Absolutely. great relationship with them. But from July onwards, it will just be David Jones.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. That's very
1: focused. In Australia anyway. We'll see yeah. what happens in the have rest of the world.
0: World domination will come soon. There's a, few, there's a soon. In the pipeline there. But, Good. Um, yeah, no, right. it's One just, thing it's at a time. At yes. One thing at a time. Tell me about your ideas about marketing, PR... How do you get the message out? And mm. very interested in um, – we're actually having Jade Roberts come in this afternoon mm. from Rara PR. Yeah, yeah. And Jade what, is one of
1: our customers.
0: There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So one of her things is about PR, in a sense, you know, comes deep from within the brand of, mm-hmm. of the way you go about things, mm. who you are, what you do. So – I can see that you're one of the more new generational businesses where your um, values are quite aligned with what you do every day. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see how, what your views are on PR and how you market the business.
1: Yeah. Well, we've done a few things over the years. Um, we have done the traditional PR route. Um, with a couple of different businesses. Um, and the one that I would definitely do a shout out to is Adam Walling, who was just oh, yeah. hes amazing, exceptional, went above and beyond at the beginning to make sure the right people were at our launch in Sydney in Great. December 17. Yeah, just came through Maria Farmer as a, as a bit of yes. a favour because I was Beautiful. doing such a shit job basically of getting people <laughs> to the press launch um, and Adam was brilliant with his team we tried a couple of different things, but we've, we've pretty much veered away from traditional PR for the last two years and have really jumped more into digital advertising, which you know has its, has its flaws for sure. Mm. I think someone said, and this is not, a, this is not a, sort of a truth bomb or anything, it's a bit cliche, but someone said to me, you can't sell a secret because when this person who has a business mm. told me how much they were spending on ads, paid ads, I was like, oh my mm. God, there's just no bloody way. It's like, Kath, you can't sell a secret. And I thought, yeah, okay, it's true. Like mm. at the end of the day, it is so crowded in the marketplace. We have to be getting the brand in front of people and in front of new eyes for sure. Mm. Um, so we do the paid ads, but I think, I think it's old fashioned, but I think there's no better advocate for the brand than customers that are happy. So, you know, ensuring that we are answering all DMs, that we, are, that we have a brilliant customer service channel to make sure that we're looking after those that have engaged with the brand. Mm. You're always going to get some, you know, a couple of Of odd ones along the way that nothing will please them. But on the whole, we have very good feedback from customers and Mm. they tell people and they tell people and they tell people. And then I guess just getting in front of the camera, doing IG lives, doing stories, Mm. showing what happens behind the scenes, um, writing a lot of blog posts, writing a lot of EDMs, um, just making sure that the brand is um the word authentic is really overused Mm, but it's true but it Mm. I think just being real about it I don't the word sustainability does not appear on our website at all I think it's an overused term and I think Mm. if I was to put forward that we're saving the planet by making new handbags I would be full of Mm. shit Mm. um so instead it's about if you're going to be in the fashion space, how's about you consider an alternative to yeah. animal-derived products? Yep, and yeah, so all it's multi-pronged, really,
0: the marketing approach. Mm. And I think that all-or-nothing mentality, when it comes to sustainability, is sort of changing in the sense that people have realised you can do small things. You don't have to immediately change the. You're not going to change the, you know, everything you do, but. Think about it yeah. and change what you be can. Be more mindful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just be more mindful about For it. For sure. Where well, you can make a change, do so. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's pretty important as well.
1: Yeah. Agree. Do you
0: sell from Instagram?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we have the shop on the IG yep. page. Yep. Um, we, you know, traffic goes to our website from Instagram. Yes. Um, we run ads <clears throat> on Facebook, Insta, and Pinterest. What Are else do Are you on we TikTok? Do? We've done a little bit on TikTok and we're about to, to dive more so yeah. into TikTok. Yeah, I guess I've sort of been a little bit hesitant in that space. I think it's a really important channel, but um, I also don't think you should jump into a channel unless you've got something good to say. So mm. we're just working out now what – not that we don't have anything good to say. No, but it's how – it's more you've
0: got great stuff to to say. It's like how is it relevant to that channel. Exactly. And how you can bring out your best through that channel yeah.
1: and make the most of that channel. Yeah, I think – You know? Yeah, and – TikTok is a lot more raw. So I think, and there's, there's so much, um, it's so funny in a lot of ways. There's a yes. lot of, um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of humour there. Look, when
0: Instagram started, it was a boom for all of the visual people we yes. know. TikTok is a boom for all the funny people Absolutely. we know. And the witty mm. and the sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm not so witty or sharp. So, you know, it'll be a challenge for me about how am I going to use TikTok. Yeah. You know, so I think it's there's, a there's ways, boon though. now for all those young guys who are
1: hilarious yeah. on
0: TikTok. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the witty people and the comedians. Yeah. Um you know that sense of yeah, irony that they it's all for the, sure. just great.
1: So it's like yeah. working
0: out how you
1: can fit into that. I think also it's about you know talking to the community and seeing who we've got in the community that wants to be a part of you know the brand as far as mm. um, marketing the brand and being being in that sort of inner circle, I suppose, with mm. us because maybe we're not the best ones to be doing it on TikTok. They mm. might be better at it. Content creations is what I'm talking about. Yes, um, yes. I should be a little bit clearer. So um, have
0: you worked with people that you feel are in that space or is that something that you think you might consider?
1: We've worked with a couple of people in the Instagram space, more mm. than the TikTok space, mm. um, but we're looking to... Sure. TikTok is Venture. sort of on the, the list right now that yeah. we're looking at. Yeah. And it is different. And I think a lot of mm, bigger definitely. brands are, even in IG stories, let alone TikTok, they're a bit afraid of it because it's so raw. Yes. And I think, I don't know whether you watched The Crown. Did you watch The Crown when yes. that was happening? Oh Do you remember the God. moment when um, the reporter, the journalist writes something about the queen and then she has that secret meeting with him? Yes. And he says, your majesty, the age of deference is over. Yes. And I think the same for big brands. Like I love as a brand owner you can decide how you want to present but it's also my ego that wants that. Mm. We have to recognise that the community have also got a view as to what the brand stands for mm. for them and that means that some content that is put out is not going to be how I would create it mm. but that's sort of exciting and it's, it's just a little bit of a, a levelling sort of time I think for brands. Yeah, it's very, more it's very creative. democratic.
0: It is democratic, It is yeah. really democratic. Mm. Everyone can put their voice out there, which I think is really exciting. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that's where you're truly entrepreneurial in that you're not seeing it just as Catherine. No. You know, you're seeing what your customers need and want. Definitely. And what would they see, you know, in the TikTok space for you. And I guess that's the trick of working that out, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And I definitely don't want it just to be about Catherine. I mean, firstly, I'd like to have a bloody holiday at some stage. (laughs) And secondly, you know, there's Maddie in the team, our social media coordinator. There's Beck, who's heading up digital. There's, everyone's got a view and everyone's got a sense as to what the brand means to them. And then you've got the, the, the circles going out or the the ripples going out into the pond of how the community actually see the brand. Mm. I, st- I think you've got to have a strong foundation, and I'm Absolutely. clear on what the aesthetic is for the brand. Absolutely, but it can it can morph and manifest yeah. as well,
0: and change around the edges. Yes, and yeah, exactly. That's great. It's it doesn't all have to be about the founder, in a sense. It shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be. Yeah, no, it shouldn't it be. Belongs, I mean, that's dangerous. Yeah, it belongs to a larger Definitely. audience. I love that. Yep. Tell me, you just mentioned on saying that you would love a holiday yes talk to me about the stress the fun the stress the fun the stress the fun balance the emotional Mm. roller coaster of retail and having a business I know what that's like Mm. how do you balance everything in your life or do you you
1: may not I don't know not really no I I i give the business a lot of my time and energy. I started meditating, sort of, I don't know, a couple of months into the COVID 2020, Amazing. and that has been a game changer for me. I have a couple of rituals that I do in the day, like I do a minute of cold shower, and that's my sort of moment of saying out loud all the things that I'm grateful for, which sounds very Herbal McGoogle, but I really find that it puts me in a great state of mind to kick off the day. Right. And at the moment, it's bloody freezing. We've got an outdoor shower. So that's wow. also an even more, more of a job. An outdoor shower. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's lovely. It's a bit Balinese sort of thing. I go for walks. So I do, like, I, I feel like I do have balance, but I've been told by people that I'm not, that that's not balance, that, you know, I should take more, you know, have more downtime. But I think, like, John works in the business with me. If we're not working in our various roles, um, then we're there on the weekends, either dealing with customers or renovating the space, you know, wallpapering, painting, putting yes. things up. So it's it's um. –
0: You're fully committed.
1: We're fully committed and we're building something. Mm. And mm. It, I don't feel – certainly when I feel exhausted, then I, I don't just push through that. I You know, I'll take some time to mm. watch a show or – paint or do Mm. something creative Mm. or as I said go for a walk get into nature hang out with our cats but look the stress is is definitely there at the beginning it was particularly stressful I you know I wasn't used to not earning an income I wasn't used to every you know our bank just progressively becoming emptier a bank account with Mm. you know buying stock like stock is Mm. a big chunk
0: holding it
1: yeah Yeah, but I'm much more comfortable with that now Mm. I'm I'm I've, I'm far less attached to those, um, to the belief that that stuff is permanent anyway. Mm. I mean, we've got a roof above our head. We're not, we're not sort mm. of, we've got a lot to be grateful for. Yeah. Definitely. So I think um, I would say I've managed the stress better mm. than I ever have. But that's not to say that I'm not high energy and, and highly intense for those around me at times. Mm.
0: That's. <laughs> I think that's a, a hallmark of a lot of amazing I women I know. <laughs> and if it was a man, it wouldn't even be. A, oh, don't get that, me started so They're very on that. powerful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm interested too. I had a great conversation with someone the other day and they were talking about there's different ways to look at balance and it's what gives you energy.
1: Yes. You know, what are the things yeah. that
0: bring you energy rather than draining it you know because some of the work is kind of draining Mm. but I feel as long as there's this you're getting the energy Mm. then there is a natural balance you know so for me it's being inspired or being with amazing people and laughing all afternoon Mm. you know that sort of thing is what gives me joy and energy so I'm interested
1: what are the things that give you energy Mm. Uh, well, I mean, look, catching up with friends and family, mm. generally speaking, gives me energy. Yep. I like just downtime with John and yeah. our cats at home. Like that is, and and gardening, yeah. like repotting a plant. We don't have a garden per se, but we've got lots of plants. Yeah. So spending time with that. Tidying up the home, like, you know, decorate, like I love interiors. And I love moving it around. You know, just yeah. yeah. But I also get. I think
0: you're the first word who's <laughs> person who's used the <laughs> word jushing on the podcast. <laughs> Maybe the second. Oh,
1: my God. We should
0: have it more often. <laughs>
1: exactly. But I do, if I'm stressed, one of the best ways for me not to be stressed, like if I'm stressed about work, getting shit done alleviates makes feel my stress. Yeah, great. You know, be it a, a plan for a photographic campaign, like the creative plan for that or budget for the next financial year, or a colour palette. Like I feel that like mm. sometimes you just got to move through that stuff. Mm. I just keep going. I don't like procrastination in myself because it always just comes back to bite me on the bum. Mm. So yeah, you have to just, do the work anyway. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Tell me, you must have been to some amazing places on this earth. It, so tell me about where your work has taken you.
1: Oh, I'm so fortunate to have travelled the amount that I have. When I got back from London and um, went back to Country Road, I made a decision in my mind. I went to London because I'd split up from my first husband. I'm not Elizabeth Taylor. I'm only only under number two, really. Um, (laughs) You're doing well. (laughs) Exactly. And I decided that when I went back to CR, I really wanted to have a job that allowed me to travel. And I don't know what's – I think sometimes you can put those things out into the universe and they do manifest if you put them out strongly enough. So I started doing Pitti Filati in Florence twice a year. I had an amazing mentor in Erica and I can't believe I've just gotten Erica's last name. Doesn't matter. Knitwear designer. Did you ever meet Erica from no, the UK? I don't think so. Tony Whittaker in Fabrics. Yo, of course. Erica and yeah. Tony were good mates. Okay. So I learned a lot about yarn and knitwear from her. And um,
0: for those who might not be aware, Pitti Filati is like the Milan of fabric and yarns. Yes, Isn't it? yes. It's the big show that happens yeah. every year yeah. that the fashion faithful come to. Yeah. Well, to, Pitti
1: Womo is men's and then Pitti Filati yeah. is the yarn. Um, And I don't yeah. know what Pitti Filati is like now because a lot has changed around the world mm. with those things. Mm. But Pitti, when I used to go, was amazing. It was big. It was beautiful and there was always a party in up in Fiesole up in the hills above Florence put on by one spinner or another and they were magnificent. So I feel just so fortunate that I had those experiences and then the usual traveling scenario of Paris and London and New York didn't do that much with CR with those cities but with Mimco definitely mm. traveled around quite a bit so is there a favorite city that you have for retail for retail uh well it used to be Tokyo but I think Tokyo has probably changed a bit over the past couple of years I need to go back and have a look there mm. I think Different cities bring different things, though. Like I used mm. to love going to Colette in Paris. Mm. Gorgeous. I met Kylie Minogue there.
0: Did you really? Yeah. Everyone thought we were friends. <laughs> it was great.
1: You were just two Aussies having a chat, yeah, buying candles. How amazing! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. Colette Keep in Paris going. was fantastic. Um, London, you know, lots of different little stores there. I mean, even just going to Selfridges is always fantastic. Mm. I also love Le Bon Marche in Paris. Of it's course. a beautiful department store. Mm. Tokyo Tomorrowland. I loved. Oh, there's. Tokyo's just amazing, as is um, Kyoto, but for a different reason. Obviously, it's it's not so much commercial. It's It's culture. Brushes and paper Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Japan's got a lot to offer for sure. Isn't it interesting, I feel, and this is something I
0: talk about, it's never just one city. No. That gives you a retail view. I always feel like, I mean, if you get across two continents, even better. But if you do New York, London, Paris and a Tokyo Mm. or a side trip to Copenhagen or Mm. wherever you love, you get a world picture of retail, um, which I think is always interesting. So, you know, you might be seeing something in New York and then, oh, yeah, there's a bit of that in Paris. Then you go to London. And I do find London amazing retailers. Mm, Agree. You know, they put a story about it out there. You get a world picture. Yeah. I feel like, you know, at the end of the – three-week trip, mm-hmm. you've got a better picture and a more inspired and informed picture yeah. than you had from just one city?
1: Absolutely. I just, I was always resistant to the, um, and, you know, I used to be pretty public about this and a little bit disparaging, but um, I hated the empty suitcase out of Australia, full suitcase into Australia when it came to you know, product designers traveling. Yeah, I think it just makes Australia parochial and small-minded. Yes. You know, we have to go and see what blah blah is doing because D- we yes. buy yeah. buy their that. products and then copy them for our range. Yeah, awful. I think being for me being in a different city. You know, whether it's going to cafes or restaurants or bars, just sitting on the sitting there and just watching people, like seeing how people present themselves on mm. the street. Hopefully, having friends in different cities so you can actually see how people live. Mm-hmm. Um, is lovely and I was fortunate in, in Florence to have a couple of friends there and London the same. Mm-hmm. New York is amazing as well for a different reason. I mean retail in, in New York is brilliant as well. Mm-hmm. So I think soaking it up, I mean you said, I think you wrote somewhere and I totally agreed with you on Insta, um, that you don't visit cities, you know, you go there you and you live for a chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel the same way. I'm,
0: I'm, yeah, and it's interesting, Joel Bartfelt who started this podcast with me is starting this beautiful Mm. new travel business, you know, which is going to places, you know, that have – through brand. Yeah. It's very interesting, you know, and we're talking about – obviously I'm taking the Tokyo tour. Yes. Come with, you know, come with me to Tokyo and to Kyoto and we're going to go and do things, you know, that I would do. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I sit down in a cafe – and look around. Yeah. I go to the art galleries. I go to the wholesale fabric street. I go to the ribbon shops and I just try and immerse myself yeah. Same. in the food, in, you know, the cultural parts of it, the cool shops, the luxury shops, mm-hmm. the daggy shops.
1: I mean, the luxury you know? shops are always good to look at, but yeah. after a while, it's like McDonald's. It's, like yeah. they all, they're all the it's same all, across the globe. It is. I mean, maybe in Tokyo, yeah. like you go to Ginza and they've got a yeah. bit of a different slant on things, on things. But I much prefer Dover Street Market. Yeah. But like their visual merchandising is just like unbelievable I, and it's it's always so inspiring. And has been for a very long time. Yes, just yes. unique. Yeah. And I think doing galleries and exhibitions in um foreign cities is also great to inform an aesthetic right. as well because they know how to curate and they know how to present. And tell the story. And tell the story, yeah. which I find so much more inspiring for retail than looking at what a store is doing yeah. and then copying yeah. that in your own store. And I, I find the
0: V&A mm. inspiring.
1: Yep. Obviously
0: they, you know, they're, part of their orbit that they take in is also theatre design. Mm-hmm. So for me... You know, that's always a wonderful thing. Yep. And obviously, they have fashion as well. So, I find some of the exhibitions I've been to there are not only do they tell a story, but man, is it beautiful. Oh, I love the Venus. The VNA sonography too. Mm-hmm. is that, you know, that's the goosebumps thing for me. Yep. You know? So, that's definitely, and I always think about how did someone above where that designer sit say yes? I I think that that's what's inspiring. That they were able to, the people who were making the decisions, wherever they sat, whether above or to the side of those people, Mm -hmm. there's a creative head there. Mm. And I feel like this thing of the suitcase Mm -hmm. (laughs) will go Mm. when we have creative heads at the heads or helms of our businesses. Yeah. Where there is an imbalance in a, a company where there are either not enough women or not not enough creative people at their decision-making area yeah that's when you get this imbalance mm. and the companies you know that sort of i was fortunate to work with you know like in early days of sports girl yes there were the number crunches but you know david bardis mm-hmm. was about the creativity mm-hmm. they always made a commercial and creative decision. Yeah. And I think the best companies have that balance at that senior level. Yeah, I agree, you know. I think I, I think that's a big thing. I
1: think it's about respecting the idea and to, and recognizing that it's not about thinking that you have it's an original idea. I mean, idea, you know that whole that quote of um it's not where you took the idea from, it's where you take the idea to. Exactly. Which is so not Relevant. about replication. No, but it's, it's about iteration and, it, and adding yes. different layers to it. Yes. And, yeah, and I think that's why fashion
0: point. is so creative mm-hmm. because there is this idea of replication.
1: Mm.
0: You know, it's always the story of the woman from Prada who went into a factory outlet and bought a Balenciaga jacket, a vintage Balenciaga jacket, and said, Why would I change this? You know, so this idea of that interesting is copying bad. Mm. You know, and yes it is. I loathe copying. But this idea of the zeitgeist Mm -hmm. that everyone can share in this new feeling about a bag or a shape. Yeah. And you know, if everyone could design that from their core and give their interpretation of it, yeah, then it's a real thing. Yeah. And then people see that and it it is creative. Yeah. And I think that's you definitely get that in cities. You know, like I see that in the events industry yeah. that everyone's very creative and you're sort of doing a similar thing but everyone has their version of that. Yeah. And that's what actually makes it energetic yeah. and inspiring in a way, you know. I that, wonder if, You know, um, it's interesting.
1: I wonder if those in events and theatre and um, even creative marketers, not paid ads necessarily, definitely not, yeah. but the creative <laughs> marketing aspect... I sometimes think there's, there's more creativity that is visible than there is in product design teams. I don't know what stagnates product design teams at times. but Because they have to make money is it? directly. I don't know. I don't know. I mm. think also what we're, turning, what we're turning out in universities is a bit of a hero designer mentality um, mm. versus the team, team comes together yeah. and you all, we all need to bounce off each other. You well, might be maybe. brilliant at bags and shoes and mm. whatever, dresses that this person's a really great storyteller. So you guys talk, you women talk to each other. Mm. And you bring the technical acumen for the materials and the shape and you bring the the, the copywriting. Like I think there's just got to be more collaboration's too simplistic a term. Oh but no, a bit of a consortium is. of creativity it, has to happen. Well, it's funny you
0: say that because when you think of I always, you know, say visual merchandising, my growing up in that was a team based pursuit. Yes events are team-based you have the ideas together every you know there's 200 people backstage
1: that's a team yeah so maybe it's to do with teams I think it is I think and again look going back to my you know upbringing and air force and all the rest of it like I'm I've always been a little bit antsy about hero designers and about um Mm. ivory towers and Mm. big egos I mean clearly I've got an ego but just the that it all sits with design and everyone else is mere minions. Yeah. Like really not
0: good, not good. It is
1: it is about a team, particularly yeah. the bigger Absolute. the business. Like, Absolutely the more you know, everyone's got to yeah. hold hands and jump off a cliff together. Yeah. Write the stories, market it, produce it. Mm. You know, it's mm. I think that's what makes a great business, which is a bit of a tangent, sorry. But No, it's not. <laughs> it's the thing. <laughs> I've got uh, two
0: questions for you to end our uh-huh. fabulous chat today. The first one is something
1: we ask everyone. Mm.
0: Do you see yourself as front of house or back of house?
1: Yeah, I, I wondered how I was going to answer this. I'm, I'm definitely both. I mean, I'm there's a couple of different personalities. That's around two in out here. of 17 people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm definitely back of house in the sense of pulling things together and knowing how I want everything to look and recruiting the people and hopefully mentoring the people and doing the background work but I'm you know I'm in front of the camera I'm dealing with a lot of our customers I'm on the stage quite a lot mm. so um so you're the, you bring the party as well yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I'd like to share that stage with more people as time <laughs> goes on as I said getting back to the holiday but yeah I, I'm probably the reason I say both is that um if I was just front of house then I would you know not care about how any of this happened. And I have a real angst with just kicking that stuff to other people. I think it's important that you respect what happens back of house because those people have got so much to offer. And Um, they've got a lot of power too. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So I think in the fashion space, it's often the production people. I suppose that you would consider the back of house and the designers the front of house. And I've always had a lot of respect for the production people, the merch planning people, the, the, the sum of the parts, really. Mm. So, I don't know. It's the team. It is. Maybe definitely. I'm just theatre in the round. Yeah. Back <laughs> of house and front of house. house. I love it. <laughs> You're both. You're
0: definitely both. Um. We love quotes mm-hmm. at Gloss Creative. I don't know why. It's the nerdiest thing we do. I love but quotes too. I believe them. <laughs> so,
1: do you have one that you love? I've got two. Um, Great. One is, one is um, on the front of a notebook that I bought when I was when I'd come back from London and gone back to CR, which is a Thoreau quote, which is "Go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you've imagined." And I still refer to that in my mind on a regular basis. Beautiful. And if things aren't going the way I want for my life, then I often say to John, we have to create the life that, you know, that we actually want to live. And the other one is nothing changes if nothing changes. Love it. Because it's just the truth really, isn't it? Yeah. Got to do something different if you want the change.
0: Yep, absolutely. Catherine, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. So nice Um, talking to you. Oh, look, it's just been amazing. We could stay here all afternoon and eat some beautiful vegan donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege. Thank you.